it's uh, an insane heat uh, and I think the wind just adds to that as well. Was there ever a point where you thought that car just looks amazing, I'm going in there? That's hard to get your head around when you're so used to like seeing through like 8, 10, 15 miles into a race. Yeah, I really struggled to take in any calories for the rest of the race. Hi, it's Paul. Welcome to the Pylon Ultra Pod and welcome back if you've been here before. This isn't as you'd likely expect the start of the next series of our shorter sprint pods, but it's yet another bonus episode. Following on from our most recent conversation with John Conley talking about his 100 mile journey and the iconic Western States 100 race, that's always going to be a difficult one to top, but we just couldn't miss the opportunity to talk about another one of the iconic American ultra races. We also couldn't miss the opportunity to again talk to one of the most accomplished, consistent and hard as nails long distance ultra runners in the UK, who also happens to be a friend of ours and a coach at Pylon. I am of course talking about Badwater 135 and the one and only Debbie Martin Gonsani. So before James and Debbie join the call for anyone who maybe hasn't followed ultra running for very long or really delved into the history of the sport, Badwater's claim is that it's the world's toughest foot race. That's obviously up for debate and maybe at the end of the call Debbie will be able to let us know what she thinks having raced some of the other toughest races in the world. Badwater covers 135 miles, that's 217 kilometres, non-stop from Death Valley to Mount Whitney in California. The race starts in Badwater Basin, Death Valley, which also marks the lowest elevation in North America at over 85 metres below sea level. The race runs through Death Valley and some of the most extreme temperatures, and it then finishes at the trailhead at Whitney Portal which sits at around two and a half thousand metres of elevation. So from the lowest point in the US to the foot of the highest point, Mount Whitney. I think some of the names of the landmarks and checkpoints paint a good picture of what the runners face. Furnace Creek, Salt Creek, Devil's Cornfield, Devil's Golf Course, Stovepipe Wells, Lone Pine and the Sierra Nevada. The race first started in 1987 and back then it was a team event. It was the UK versus the US. Since then, the race has grown and it's difficult to even get into the event, uh, let alone to complete it. So with a background to the race covered, I'll keep a background to Debbie pretty short, as most of you will be well aware of her accomplishments across the board, from winning the infamous spine race to picking up GB vests for 24-hour track races and winning Centurion 100 milers and Lakeland 100. She's completed UTMB, the Tour de Gion and more. Technically, John Conley stole her place at Western States 100 this year, but I'm sure she'll take it off at some point. So let's get on with it. James, how are you doing in Sunny Croy? I'm doing exceptionally well, Paul. I had a couple of weeks holiday, um, a couple of days in Blair Gowrie. Well, a few days in Blair Gowrie which is amazing. And then we took the kids to Port Aventura and I was almost sick after um, the fifth roller coaster. Ewan's got to the age where he loves them. I've got to the age where I regret Ewan getting to that age. Yeah, All how right. are you doing? I'm okay, mate. I'm okay. How was the uh, food at Port Aventura? I went there years ago with a very, well, first ever girlfriend, I think. We thought we were dead grown up and 
Um, yeah, it was weird when I think back at it now. It was Port Aventura, right? Oh, uh, Port Aventura, sorry, yeah, I think you said yeah, Port Aventura. No, mm. um, and the food was actually it was good, but it was one of those all inclusive gigs. Um, but we went to a, a restaurant which you can use your, your vouchers for, <laughs> your vouchers for, and I'm vegetarian. Um, and um, there was one vegetarian option, and it was like a meat substitute thing. So I ended up having a roll in guacamole um, for my, for my dinner, <laughs> and it was actually quite nice. But that's Spain for you, right? There's there's not a lot of veggie options in some of the restaurants. No, they don't love the vegetarians or the vegans, even even more so. Yeah. Anyway, let's crack on. Debbie, thanks so much for agreeing to do this Thank and you. giving up some of your precious time for Thank all the ultra geeks like us. Yeah. Uh, we're all fascinated to hear about Badwater, I think, and, and really excited about it. So um, I'm not even sure where to start with this incredible adventure. I think when we last spoke on the podcast, um, it was on the back of your win at the Spine Race. And sure. I think I touched on it earlier in the introduction. Um, I think your heart was probably really set on doing Western States this year. And maybe even if that ticket had come out and you'd have got your place on Western States, you might not have wanted to race the Spine. But as we often say, some things happen for the best, maybe. And in some way, you were probably guided towards those days you spent on the Pennine Way yeah. uh, and then and then on to Badwater. Um, so I'm just keen to understand how it came about and when did you know you would be heading for Badwater and have you forgiven John Conley for stealing your Western States place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I alluded to before, um, if I got a place in Western States, um, I wouldn't have done the spine race because the spine takes quite a long time to recover from and I knew if I got finally got my place in Western States then I'd want to just put all my eggs in one basket. Um, so even before um, that I was so, super thankful that that decision was made for me because it meant I had the best experience out on the spine but yeah. it also meant that um, when I applied for Badwater, which was a week after the spine, um, just on a kind of like, I got something in my head and the ball started rolling and before I knew it, I'd applied and um, I'm pretty sure I only got a place in Badwater because I had won the spine. Um, I think the race director knew that I'd won the spine and the selection process um, for the race is everyone just applies and the race director selects the hundred people and invites the hundred people mm -hmm. along to the race. Um, the selection process is not about elites and you know well-known runners. I think it's pretty much based on the people he thinks will actually finish the race because above all, that's yeah. the most important and making sure that people are prepared and safe to be out there. Um, so yeah, I, I applied thinking, oh, I don't know. Um, and then when I watched the um, the race announcement, he did say that 50 places had rolled over from people who couldn't travel in the previous year, which means there was only yeah. 50 places available. Um, so I wasn't quite sure. And then when my name was announced, I was kind of like excited, stroke petrified. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how I found myself. Getting a place on Badwater and uh, it's one of those races that's been on my radar for a long time and if anyone had said to me, you know, what races would you like to do, um, Badwater and Western States would be really high up there. Um, mm. Western States I knew one day they will eventually let me in but Badwater's kind of one of those things that was kind of more of a, a dream that maybe wouldn't yeah. happen so yeah, trust the universe 
as I say, so I was pretty thankful that things worked out the way that they were meant to be. They don't leave a huge amount of time, do they, for prep, really? If you were finding out after the spine race and then the race isn't, it's not that soon until you're actually out there and racing. Yeah, it's true. It maybe gives you less time to panic about it. Yeah, maybe. More time to spend a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Debbie, I mean, it was really interesting. So we we chatted and we talked a wee bit about your training for the spine, right? Which is pretty easy to train for in Scotland because it's just run about in the bog, right? Um, bad water is slightly different. I ran for a couple of days when it was warm over here, <laughs> and um, and and I was nearly dead. And then you're posting up my Instagram. Hey, it's fifty seven degrees, and and that's the one that you double and add twenty eight to for anyone who's listening. So it was like that. That goes to the big number. Um, and it was nineteen degrees in this in this pod today that I'm in and I had the fan on and you're running in that heat how did you train and prep for that and what was your focus because you've, you've went from the spine so the endurance is there but how do you move from running in winter in the UK to the warmest place on earth um, it befuddles me yeah it's not the obvious race no. bounce that's for sure um, I guess with all these dream, uh, sort of all these races where um, you're really pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, you're out of your comfort zone because you're going to be faced with something that you aren't prepped for, haven't experienced, or haven't trained in. So for something like the spine and bad water, it's probably best to focus on your weaknesses. Um, so for the spine, my weakness was always going to be, you know, being out navigating in the dark or with a big pack. So my focus was always training with a big pack because that was something that I hadn't really prepped for. So with bad water, um, you know, there's 135 miles, there's 15,000 feet plus of climbing. So you go over three mountain passes. Um, but the miles, the climbing, the road, I've done that inside out for 20 years. So I knew that I didn't really need to go and churn out big miles and go climbing up hills. So I really had to focus on the heat because that was going to be my weakness. Um, so in my application form for Badwater, they ask you, you know, why do you want a place or why should we give you a place? And I just wrote, I'm Scottish, I'm ginger, and I don't belong in Death Valley. And that's all I put. And that pretty <laughs> much sums it up yeah. <laughs> of why I wanted to go and maybe why they should just give me a place. Um, so I just had to focus on the heat and uh, I had to get creative because as you alluded to in Scotland we just don't have high temperatures I think the highest I trained in before uh, heading out to the US was 19 degrees um, and that was just one day because I do a lot of my training in the morning so it was like 8, 9, 12 degrees mm. um, so I did some sessions in a heat chamber over at the University of the West of Scotland and I spent a lot of time sitting in an 80 degree sauna at David Lloyd. So I joined the gym just to sit in the sauna. <laughs> so people would come into the sauna and they'd be asking me what workouts I've been doing. And I'm like, I've never been in the gym in here. I literally just come in here and sit in the There's sauna. A gym? <laughs> I literally like, she's so lazy, that woman. No, she's like, oh, okay. So I just come here and sit in the sauna and fry. Um, and then I kind of built a DIY heat chamber in my garage so I have a treadmill in the garage so at the bottom of the garage I um, blocked off a section with the tarpaulin that I bought from Amazon and put in some fan heaters and uh, just got on the treadmill and I could get that up to about 38 degrees Um, so yeah that was a kind of mixture of things that I had to do Um, 
and just like going to the the university in that heat lab I you know I had some tests as well for like my heart rate my speed my effort levels uh, my core temperature and I only did a couple of those sessions but it improved every single time that I went um so it just gave me a little bit more confidence and I felt mm. mentally and emotionally prepared as well as physically um going into the race because I knew that I, I was doing the best that I could with what I had so talking about being emotionally and mentally prepared Debbie um, and before we actually talk about the event itself you didn't exactly have a stress-free training block like you normally do before your big events and it's totally cool if you don't want to talk too much about this so please say as little or as much as, as feels comfortable to you obviously there was a big family concern out of the blue um, and what you had to face must have been one of the hardest things for you to deal with in life let alone still having some prep for a race going on in the background as well and fortunately, as horrendous and potentially serious as it was, the outcome has been okay overall. Um, and it feels like we can't really tell your Badwater story without hearing about uh, the accident first. Uh, now, races obviously are a relatively safe test of strength and character, but what happened with Cairn was the real deal for you and for Marco as well. So can you maybe tell us a wee bit about what happened that day? Yeah, so... Um, this top line um about a month before the race i had a phone call from our 13 year old son cairn when i was at work and he was hysterical down the phone um saying that he'd been near a rail line and he had burnt his leg and um so i jumped in the car and i drove straight there it was only like 10 minutes away i found him on find friends on the iPhone, um, went straight there, basically massively underestimating what I was just about to face. I thought I was going to get there, give him a bollocking and throw him in the back of the car for being so stupid. Um, when I got there, there was um, two ambulances or had already got there. So someone had heard him and phoned the ambulance and um, but nobody could get in at him because he'd climbed the fence and climbed some trees and then decided he wanted to climb. My son's a really keen climber and he's also very reckless. And um, he decided he wanted to climb over this pipe that was on a bridge that went over the rail line. Um, and as he was climbing it, his foot hit something live, basically. He didn't hit the overhead line because he wouldn't be here to tell the story. Um, and uh, by the time the fire brigade had to come and cut the fence to get him out um, when the fire brigade arrived they duly informed us that they thought they were coming to pick up a body that nobody should survive that amount mm -hmm. of voltage um, so when he got into the ambulance um, his whole right leg had been burnt and his body was 10% electrical burns and uh, so by the time we got to A and E, um, there was a trauma room with twenty five medics waiting for him. Oh. Um, and his leg, what initially looked like sunburn, had already started to blister and basically yeah. melt. Is the best way I can describe it. Um, so he was in intensive care for three days because he had skin grafts. Um. And he had slight burns on his fingers, so they thought that was the exit wound for the electricity, so they had to mm -hmm. keep an eye on him. But 
thankfully most of his injuries were external but he was you know skin grafts are really painful yeah. and uh, so he was in hospital in the kids hospital in Glasgow for eight days and uh, so he had a lot of treatment so physio podiatrist surgeons nurses doctors psychologists you name it they were coming in and out so we spent eight days basically sent in the hospital with him and um, even from like day one they were keen for us still to go away to America because obviously Karen was asking and they were talking about the treatment and how long things would take and um, at no point did they say that we shouldn't go even though you know being away for two weeks was going to disrupt his treatment but they're of the view that his treatment's going to last for two years and um, when they leave the hospital you basically just need to get on with life mm-hmm. and um, even up until about four days before, he couldn't walk unassisted. He was still using a chair because he couldn't put his foot down. And the physios were really working with him to get him walking. And um, so yeah, the first couple of days of the holiday were not great because he was having pro- trouble with, and then he was kind of in and out of the wheelchair and using crutches. But by day three, he was off and um, fine. I mean, it looks, worse than it is probably um but we didn't know if we'd be able to travel a few days up until a few days because he was still his wounds weren't healed enough for him to be away from treatment Mm -hmm. but you know i was still training like it was happening um even though it was very disrupted um i was on the treadmill with my heaters at five o'clock in the morning and but whenever i was going out for a run you know it's it's hard because i wasn't eating and i wasn't sleeping and my head was just racing all the time you know i just yeah. kept going over all these yeah. scenarios in my head and it was really hard to run and just clear my head from that because my head was literally just kicked in because it's all of a sudden i had this time where i was out by myself and i didn't have to be in the hospital or working and stuff yeah. so my me time didn't become it was more yeah. like I was just consumed 24-7 by everything that was happening and all these different scenarios. And But, you know, it worked out. I did the best I could. I missed some sauna sessions. I was full of great ideas of getting a massage and a pedicure and all those things that never happened. And, um, and as I say, by the time we got to the States, a few, like two days later, it was like, leaps and bounds in his improvement and he was absolutely fine um yeah we still had to still deal with the the wounds and still treat the things and uh but yeah he's in a completely different place than he was a few weeks ago because you know when that massive injury happens a month out and the treatment's going to take like two years it was just yeah yeah, we but just even and we were kind of like planning it was happening until it wasn't happening, and you know, it, it felt very selfish and I felt very guilty. Um, because I was going taking them, my family there for purely selfish, self indulgent reasons, and um, I kind of knew that maybe I wouldn't get another shot at it, and I felt really guilty and really selfish. Um, but you know, Karen was desperate to go. This was like a big deal. This was a big holiday. You know, we were going for two weeks, yeah. big yeah. plans. We weren't just going to Death Valley for me. And um, so yeah, it was. It wasn't ideal <laughs> situation, yeah. but it all worked out in the end. I can understand why you might 
feel guilty or something but you made those decisions as a family didn't you it wasn't yeah like you were, and we, you, you know we took decision. we took advice from the medics that were treating him do you know it yeah. was like a lot of people didn't know what happened um because i didn't want everyone's opinion on it do you know yeah, and yeah. um yeah, if at any point the surgeons and nurses who were treating him said that we shouldn't be going 100 percent, i wouldn't have went so you know you don't really want to start taking advice from social media um and that would have happened so i just kind of like it wasn't a secret like every people who knew yeah. about it or asked me about it you know they, they knew but i just i was i was still processing that and still processing things and um you know like karen made all the national papers yeah. on the saturday and uh thankfully they can't name them but you know when i work yeah. in the industry it's kind of hard to see mm -hmm. um yeah but unfortunately he now thinks he's famous for all the wrong reasons <laughs> um, i think i think for anybody who knows you well enough debbie i think none of us would have any doubt if you were told that it wasn't going to be right for Karen. We, we all know you would you would absolutely put Karen first so yeah um, and I know that's it's a bit different on social media because people will think that they know who you are and think they know stuff about you but there's there's um, a smaller number of people who know how much you care for your family and for Karen. so yeah it's really tough I mean tough, Karen's my number time. one priority at yeah. all points at any point in my life yeah. Um, yeah so we just we just took it one day as a time and as I say it all worked out and you know like even from the beginning you know like he was asking the surgeon like when can i go back climbing and the surgeon kind of went mm, but five or six weeks and i was like are you joking but they're <laughs> like once he's up and out he needs to get back to his life he needs to get back to his regular routine everything that he did before he needs to start doing within about four or five weeks because they need to just get everything moving and the graphs yeah. moving because otherwise they just won't work properly mm. um so yeah so he was back climbing at the climbing center as well um because they were really keen to get him moving again and when we were away in the states he was walking forever and there was bits where he was like mom i can run and he was sprinting across the car park i was like no you're not supposed to run <laughs> um, but you know kids are really resilient and um they were they did say like when he starts to improve he'll come on leaps and bounds but i just didn't see that at the beginning um but a few weeks later he really did improve vastly Oh wow, Debbie! I mean, <clears throat> it's a lot of courage, a lot of emotion in hearing that story. But I think there's a few key things to take away here. Is, is ultimately, <coughs> Karen is your priority, and we we know that because we know you. Um, and you're right. The other thing is, is don't take advice off social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If if you're listening to this, that is one thing. If you are taking advice from social media, please stop. <coughs> Um, yeah. And one one thing I would say, right, is is I love the fact that Karen was desperate to go as well, right? Because yeah. ultimately, he'll probably not say it because he's a teenage boy, right? And we've got kids about the same age, so he's probably really proud of his mammy, and he wants to see you achieve. And actually, you set a, an example for him that I think is exceptional. I'm not saying that be because we're on this podcast and and for likes and shares. Genuinely, you set an exceptional, and Marco as well. Um, you more than Marco because Marco won't listen to this. Um, <laughs> set a, a really exceptional example. <clears throat> so let's talk about the race, right? Thank you for sharing that. So Cairn's going to be okay. Cairn's um, fine. I, I will just you, say that Cairn was more excited about the fact we were going to Vegas before the race and LA after the race. 
the race mm. bit in the middle, he was less so yeah, annoying bit in the middle. <laughs> Sitting there with his chips, and he's like, get me down to a poker table at two in the morning. Yeah. Um, so Cairn's okay, so you've agreed as a family you're going to go to the race, which is brilliant. Um, you get to back, so you've been in Vegas, right? And I remember seeing the pictures on social media because you have to go down to the Vegas sign, right? You know, everybody thinks you have to go play blackjack. You have to go to the Vegas sign Mind and run the right. strip. Exactly. Um, but even from there, you get from there, which is warm, to the Badwater Basin, and you step out that air-conditioned car. Just tell me what that felt like. Yeah, I mean, it was still a shock, despite the fact I'd done, like, months of heat training. And, you know, in Vegas, it was tipping 40 degrees when we were there. And then I think for the late, a few days after we were leaving, it was going to be, like, 45 there, which is still quite high for Vegas. So when we drove out to Death Valley on the Saturday after being in Vegas since the Tuesday, and uh, Marco was giving me the running commentary of the temperature gauge in the car, he became quite obsessed with this temperature <laughs> gauge. And I got I got a temperature update like every 10 minutes, five minutes. But like, that's 110, that's 115, that's 120. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, when we got, to, we got to the Death Valley sign and obviously we all got out and got the picture taken. And um, then we went to Badwater Basin, which is where the race starts. And we all got out and we walked along the, the little kind of platform thing. And, you know, people have said to me, it's like a hairdryer in your face because it's quite windy as well. Um, and it was like 50-51 when we were there. And um, it's uh, an insane heat. Uh, and I think the wind just adds to that as well. Mm-hmm. I felt like my skin was literally like frying and like shriveling up <laughs> and my eyes felt like they were totally burning. So there's a picture of me and my eyes are just like little tiny red dots. Because <laughs> that pain of the wind and um, your eyes and then you get in the car again and then you just like sweat like you've never mm-hmm. sweated before. Mm-hmm. So I mean obviously it's a really dry heat. Um, I noticed like the other morning I went out for a run here and I swear I sweated more in four miles than I did the whole way along Death Valley um, because we have such high humidity here. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really dry heat um, and it was great to have that journey because that meant we actually drove from Badwater Basin pretty much the whole of the route. So I got to do a recce in the car, which was kind of nice and um, I was just blown away by how beautiful it is. Like, I expected it to be desolate and mundane and mm-hmm. barren and just really quite boring. But mm. it's absolutely stunning. Like, I know it's a road and there's a white line, um, mm-hmm. but the landscape changes so much and the colours are just... So even, like, if you've got a long stretch of road, it's a beautiful long stretch of road. It's just the mm-hmm. scenery is so amazing. Um, but the whole vastness of it could not get my head around because at one point in the race we were heading towards a little kind of town called Panamint Springs which is like 72 miles into the race and um, I could see it it was like a stone throw away Um, and I said to like Susie and my crew I was like just give me some ice and I'll meet you in Panamint Springs so you can go and get set up get some food get some petrol get yourself sorted and she was like no that's six miles away (laughs) I was like it can't be. It's literally right there mm-hmm. in front of me, because mm-hmm. it's as clear as day. And uh, but it's just like the whole, 
scale of things that you just yeah. think things are really close because that's what you're used to. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's beautiful, but so vast. Like the scale is just like unbelievable. I'm kind of picturing you and Susie, like that famous Father Ted thing when Dougal's, Ted's explaining to Dougal about the, the cow. He's like, <laughs> he's got the toy cow. He's like, close up, far away. She's got a little Lego town on her hand saying, this is close up. That's far away then. <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly um, what it's like. I'm like, yeah. it's there. And she's like, no, no, far away. There's a cow. <laughs> totally. And you, you posted a couple of pictures and I, I immediately thought, you said that Paramount Springs or whatever. And I'm thinking, I was thinking Radiator Springs. So you'll know what that is. Some of our <laughs> listeners will as well from Cars. Um, so, it's a, not a typical race start though. I, I mean, I didn't know a lot about Bad Water to you, and I knew about it and kind of yeah. kind of followed it, but I didn't know about the race itself and the history of it. So, obviously, got to learn a wee bit about about it. And one thing that surprised me was the start. It's like this staggered start thing. What, yeah, they like? have to stagger the start because uh, people have to run in single file. Right. Um, and you can't have a hundred people running in single file. Plus, um, everyone has got the the Death Valley National Park. Basically, they they hold, they are the strings. You know, they are the people that say whether this race can go ahead or not. And I think I'm led to believe even up to a couple of weeks before, you know, nothing's signed on the dotted line. You know, there's no final confirmation that this race can go ahead because there's so many people that are involved in this. Um, I, I don't know the names of all the associations, but let's just say Death Valley National Park and all their bodies um, have to have the final say. So they're very stringent about the rules um, just to make it safe for everyone. Um, so everyone does need to run in single file, but everyone needs to be through stovepipe wells, or is it stove well pipes? I'm kind of stovepipe wells, which is 42 miles in the rate. No, sorry just after that 50 miles everyone has to be past the 50 mile mark at 10 o'clock in the morning so they stagger it according to um speed or ability or experience um and then they start maybe some of the i don't want to say slower but they'll start people to give them enough time to get to that um sign at 50 miles at 10 o'clock in the morning so they stagger it because everyone has to be single file plus there's a hundred cars that are leapfrogging every single mile so it just lets the race just break up a little bit so there's not so much congestion with people and crew right okay that makes sense yeah because your crew it's like nothing else because like your crew does meet you like every mile and when i started that and because i'm so used to being so self-sufficient and being out for like days it was hard for me to get my head around the fact that I was going to be seeing my crew so quickly. And at the beginning, it was like every two miles, every three miles. Um, and then, you know, when you start to feel the effects of the heat and I was really sick, I was pretty much seeing my crew every mile. And that's hard to get your head around when you're so used to like seeing crew like eight, 10, 15 miles into a race. You don't think that you'll need to see them that often, but you really do because it's a massive team effort it's not i mean all i did was move uh my crew did all the grafting um so yeah having like a hundred cars leapfrogging every mile is just on those roads is just not possible because you have to park completely off the road outside the white line um and that's not there's not a lot of parking spaces as well 
So you mentioned there, Debbie, about um, feeling a bit sick and stuff like that. I'm quite keen to understand how you felt maybe in that first 20 miles. I know you would have been nervous at the start and it's just kind of normal feelings you get and I'm sure you were worried about the heat and all the stuff that you've maybe not faced before. You're not probably nervous about the distance or anything like that, but that first 20 miles, was everything going to plan? How did you yeah, feel in your mind? I mean, I, I was nervous, but I was more kind of nervous, excited, not nervous, I'm going to die type nervous, mm-hmm. like I'm sometimes mm-hmm. when I do the spine. Um, and that was because I knew I had my crew with me the whole time. So I wasn't going out into the great unknown by myself. I was going out into the great unknown with four people who were there to help me. So it was a different kind of nervous. Um, but, you know, when we stopped at Furnace Creek on the way to the race and there's a picture of me at the sign, you know, that was at sunset and it was 47 degrees mm-hmm. already. And it's, you know, it doesn't really drop much below that. Yeah. Um, so when I started, I started with like a buff with ice around my neck before I'd even run a step. Um, it was already really hot at Badwater Basin and I felt fine. Um, I knew I didn't want to get a, I didn't want to push it too hard and get that buffer because it was dark because people make that mistake where they try to bank miles in the dark, but it's already like really hot. Yeah. And plus, when you start at night, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I always end up with, like, GI issues as well when a race starts at night. It's just that whole, mm-hmm. you're feeding your stomach when you should be sleeping and your body's just not yeah. used to it. So I often feel quite nauseous. But I think from about 23 miles, 24 miles, I think I was just taking on way more fluid than I'm used to. I did feel genuinely thirsty when I was drinking it. And then just the heat and you know just going through the night and I was pretty sick like the worst I've ever been for about 15 miles after that maybe 20 miles and there was a couple of times later on um so basically everything I'd taken in ended up on the side of the road and uh, subsequently that happened for quite a while and um yeah I really struggled to take in any calories for the rest of the race pretty much um i could only really drink um i tried to take some gels but i was just gagging and that mm-hmm. was just like a trigger for me to be sick again and um so yeah i was trying to take gels and water um in hindsight when i look back i have literally no idea how i managed to finish that race on what i'd actually consumed yeah. you know when i was yeah. being sick i was down to the bile stage Sorry yeah. for the graphics, but that just <laughs> was absolutely nothing in my stomach. So, yeah, I think my crew got very excited because I had like 10 centimetres of a banana <laughs> at one point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I was I was drinking fine and obviously I was bringing a lot of it back up. Um, but, you know, what? I'm not alone. It happens to a lot of people in bad water. I think it's a rite of passage if they do yeah. the bad water. Everyone's got to have a vomit somewhere along the line. Um, but yeah, sometimes when you're sick, you feel better. Um, but I was just like really depleting any energy supplies that I actually had. That's insane. So you mentioned your crew there. You obviously had Marco, who's your husband, and Susie, who's a friend, and I think you had one other kind of local American guy. Yeah, it's a guy called James who had um put on the Facebook group that he was looking to help out and um. So I got in touch with him because I knew we needed mm-hmm. an extra person because um, there was actually a, a documentary they're making on Badwater and they wanted to give one of my crew a camcorder 
Um, and I thought, well, if they've got to do that and look after me and drive and various things, it would be good to have another person on hand. Um, yeah. And it worked out really well. They all got on swimmingly. They had a great time. They all had those in-jokes that I didn't know about the next day. Um, they're all quite nerdy. All the Star Wars? Was that all the Star Wars stuff? Yeah, or something yeah. About? They're yeah. all quite really... I noticed in the drive out, they were all like really nerdy and um, I thought they were just going to get on brilliantly. Um, but they were amazing. I mean, as I say, I've, I've never had a race where um, I've had to rely so much on my crew other than someone offering me a gel and me refusing it, which is pretty much my standard race strategy. Um, so to go into something like that, I mean, your crew is, I know it's probably been said a million times, but it's a massive team effort. It's mm -hmm. uh, the crew have to work really hard. You know, they were like, I had pacers with me probably from about 40 miles to about 42 miles to about 84 and then I just wanted to do the last like 50 by myself because I was kind of in my groove and I was feeling okay but you know during those dark times um you know they they kept me company I didn't need a pacer as such but I think um it was good to have people there and they wanted to be out and running in the race as well because people want to crew that race because they want to get a little shot of running in death valley as well mm -hmm. um but they were all just amazing absolutely amazing the whole time like the fact that they have to stop every mile and try and patch me up and look after me and offer me various things that i won't take um it's pretty exhausting for them for sure so yeah it's a massive team effort oh i'm i can imagine uh i i and I guess even bringing someone new into the team, you can worry about that dynamic a wee bit, right? What I mean, with a name like James, right, we know he's probably solid. <laughs> but even at that, adding somebody new in, it's a stress, right? But I've never even, yeah, I mean, I've had a conversation with him. and But he's crewed at the race before, and to me that was, like, really yeah. important. And Susie had crewed twice before, and that knowledge is so invaluable because it's just like nothing else that you've ever dealt with um so you really need people who've got experience um you know even just looping back to the bit where we talked about the application process i mean mostly people only get in because they've crewed at the race and they've almost like earned their stripes out in yeah. death valley and i hadn't done that so i was like in the back door i think type thing when i went through the application process um mm. So again, I wasn't, I was quite surprised that I got a place because I hadn't been out there. Um, and again, you know, just going back to saying that the race director just wants to make, make sure people finish it above everything. It's not necessarily about, you know, bringing together this elite group of athletes to go out and smash his race. Um, and that's one of the things that he wants to make sure that people can finish it is because they've been out on the course and they've learned by either crewing or pacing in the past um, that allows them to have that experience to be able to go on and complete the race. Um, so having Susie there, who's been there a couple of times, and James, who'd done it, you know, it was quite a few years back. So even things like sorting out the car and where to get ice and what to do with the ice and how to store all the products and what we might need at various points along the race and... It was just, it was really invaluable having them there. Because although Marco's crewed for me before and he knows how to deal with me on a personal level, how to actually manage that heat, not just for me, but for them as well, 
um, you really need someone who's got experience. Indeed. Oh, that sounds like a blessing. Um, <clears throat> talking about crew, right, and I'd probably talk a wee bit about attrition in the race, um, and you've already talked a wee bit about it, you know, being sick, but as you say, it's a rite of passage. It's like, it's not, will this happen? It's when will this happen? Almost not an event like that. Yeah. Um, but this idea of seeing your crew every mile, um, was there ever a point where you thought, that car just looks amazing, I'm going to nail. Yeah, you're allowed in your car. Why so are you? you? Can't, yeah, I know, it's really bizarre. Because um, I didn't think that would be possible. But you are allowed to go, but you're not allowed to go in a moving car, obviously. Of course. Of course. Um, and I know, like, subsequently, there's been a lot of chat about the female who yeah. broke the course record. And even from day one, you know, from the beginning, I, I was pretty confident she was totally legit because she's got a lot of credibility and she passed me like a train and she was like super friendly and so nice and obviously I heard her speaking before and after the race um but it would be so easy to cheat in that race like unbelievably because you are allowed to sit in the car um I went into the car quite a few times and stuck my head (laughs) over the side and a wee vomit um but there was bits where I just thought I just need to lie down for five mm-hmm. minutes because my head's spinning, um, and I I did go in the car. But yeah, I mean it would be, it's insanely easy to think that you could your crew could just be like, but nobody would do that. We we no. know athletes and we know nobody would do that. And you would have to have four people in your crew who would allow you to cheat. And let's be honest, you're never going to find five people who think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. But you are allowed to sit in your car and I did sit in the car probably on about five or six occasions just for like five minutes even just to sit with aircon um, mm. and just lie back in the passenger seat so an aircon injection I'm just thinking Debbie some of the people we know if they were crewing for you they'd probably drive you a mile back up the road just just to get, just for a laugh <laughs> we're adding a mile on reverse <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah yeah but no, yeah. you can move in the car. Yeah, we're going back to Radiator Springs or whatever it is. So obviously, talk to me a bit about being sick, right? And the, I, I don't think it was really interesting the way you described the course because I think everyone thinks oh, it's a road, so it's just this big flat stretch, right? And we we talk a wee bit about that as well in terms of the the elevation. What what was the toughest or the lowest point of the race for you? Um, I think the toughest bit. Well, there's quite a few bits. So let's talk about the time when I was being sick. Because in my head, I'd almost got it in my head that I wasn't going to make this cut off at 50 miles because I couldn't possibly run while being so sick. Obviously, I was a massive drama queen and I was hours ahead of it. So that was fine. But um, at 42 miles, that's the first of the climbing. Um, and that's like, dawn had broken and um, it was starting to get hot and the first climb is 18 miles long um, which there's it's not a massive gradient but when it's like really hot you can't really run it well I can't because your heart rate's already elevated because you're dealing with the heat and that you've just been up all night so there's like an 18 mile climb which was like a really long slog um, but I think the hardest part for me was probably the last 13 miles because I just, I was absolutely wrecked. I was so ruined. There was nothing left in me. Um, but I was still like really, you know, I was marching. I was 
pushing forward. I wasn't slacking off. I still was really driven. Um, but with 13 miles, and there's 5,000 feet of climbing in that 13 miles, and it just, like, you know, there's some really steep switchbacks in it. And I was looking up at these switchbacks thinking, I don't know if I can physically get up them because I was just, like, so wrecked. Um, so I would say the last 13 miles. But, you know, speaking to other people, um, that's generally, it was a bad, you know, people were saying they had no idea how steep that was going to be. And, you know, at the race briefing, they say that 13 miles is going to take you, like, I think the winners do it in about four hours, but on average it's about five, six hours. Um, and I thought I was going really slowly and just, but I mean, I was, it took me about four and a half hours, um, which is ridiculous when you think it's 13 miles. <laughs> but with 5,000 feet of climbing, when you've already got 120 miles on your legs, um yeah, that was a hard, hard shift. That's really interesting, Debbie, because you've done some big mountain races, obviously, that yeah. are longer, longer distance than that. And 4,000, 5,000 feet is a big climb, regardless, but you've done bigger climbs than that and you've done them later on in a, yeah. in, uh, a race as well. But that one probably felt like one of the toughest climbs you've done then, even yeah, though it's... Yeah, it's just because I had absolutely no energy. Yeah. I had nothing. I had, Brutal. like no energy at all and i found that really hard um yeah and it's hard going when you're on the road the whole time yeah yeah i'm saying you'd you'd almost vomited all that energy out yeah uh, earlier on then the heat just goes yeah let me just take more of that energy that you've not got off you and then someone says do you mind just running up this big hill (laughs) yeah Yeah. and you think i paid for this i've paid for this at no point you know was i ever I mean, I wasn't really questioning it. There was bits where I was like willing the miles to end, like going coming into Lone Pine. There's a long stretch on the road, and I was just so Lone Pine is like 122 miles, mm-hmm. and that's where you start the ascent up to Mount Whitney Porto. It's where it finishes, and uh, there's like a couple of miles of flat roads going into Lone Pine, and I underestimated how far away the actual town was from the turn off. And uh, I was just walking that, and I was like, I'm actually just walking along a pavement here, but I just had nothing. I had nothing left in me, um, apart from the drive to keep going. That's all I had, and that never mm-hmm. faltered. You know, that never swayed. There was never at any point where I wanted to quit. You know, and um, you know, I said to my crew. Um, before like I had no major aspirations I didn't have a time goal because I'd never been there before I'd never run in those conditions and for me to start saying I'm going to do x y and z is just unrealistic and arrogant and I would just be plucking numbers out the sky to be honest so I didn't have any plans Um, I said to them I will be finished between 30 hours and 48 hours and I was like looking at other people's times if I could run 35 hours, I would be super happy with that. And um, I ran 34.57, so, <laughs> which uh, was uh, quite unbelievable because then I had just plucked a number out of my sky. Um, but it didn't matter what time I finished in. It really didn't. If it took me 40 hours, it took me 40 hours because I just wanted to go and experience it. For me, being able to enjoy it um, and just look back on the experience like in a positive way you know like 
I really wanted to do UTMB for a long time and I worked really hard to get the points. And then when I did UTMB, I didn't enjoy any of it. <laughs> I don't have a positive memory of it. To me, it was just something I had to endure. And it got to the stage where I was like, I'm just going to finish this because I never want to come back here and do it again. Um, nothing, no offense to the race, it's amazing. People love it. It's a fabulous route, it's a fabulous atmosphere. It just wasn't for me. Um, so for me to go all the way out there and you know what we'd been through as a family um, to get there, I just wanted to go away and you know it was really tough. It's definitely one of the toughest things, if not the toughest thing I've ever done. But now I'm two weeks out from the race, I've forgotten all the bad stuff and I'm just telling mm. people it was just amazing. Everything about yeah. it was magical. Because that's my memory of it, I've forgotten all the, the stuff where I was bent over spewing bile at the side of the road oh yeah it's funny you mentioned utmb right because you've got like if they could do top trumps for races you've probably got a decent collection of some of the big races especially in europe and um, we should add western states to that one day debbie you should probably apply i don't know if you, you've ever applied <laughs> i know a guy that got in with one ticket yeah yeah um so um I guess probably the most analogous race you've ever done, or at least my understanding, would have been Sparta towards Badwater. Yeah. Did the experience of that help? It is, it's a different kettle of fish. It's really, and yeah, it did help a little bit. Um, but when I did Spartathlon, I think it probably got to maybe mid-30s, um, which is like a really hot day in the UK, do you know? Yeah. Um, and although I really was affected by the heat when it got hot, you know, Spartathlon's a running race and they set it up so that it is a running race. I mean, you'll know that the cutoffs for the 75 yep. checkpoints are really quite strict um, uh, because although it does get hot, you're very much within that the realms of those conditions that people can actually run if they have heat adapted and trained for those conditions. Um, so yeah, although I can draw some similarities in the race, it was like Spartathlon on acid, do you know? It was, um, there was things that I could take from that, but really it was kind of like, it's kind of like doing like a park run and then trying to run a marathon, do you know? It's kind of, yeah. I know that's not the, probably the analogy that I'm using, but you've got a taster of it, but really you've got no clue what lies mm -hmm. ahead. Um, so although, you know, some things I did in training that I did for Spartathlon, but I ramped it up about tenfold because um, it's just the difference between like 32 and 30 degrees and 50. I mean, I know it's like 18 degrees. I'm some, someone else point out smart arse, but it's what it does to you is massively different. You yeah. know, what it does to your effort levels and what it does to your heart rate and mm. digestion and even just having that sun against your skin, it's yeah. literally like being stabbed. Um, I know I've been mocked to death for my white leggings. I'm gonna get white leggings going, by the way. So, <laughs> um, watch a space. <laughs> watch this next summer. Everyone's gonna uh -huh. wear white leggings. But I had like after the first night when it was like really hot, I had this awful heat rash on my legs. Like my legs looked like were totally red with this prickly heat rash. And having the sun against my skin on my, my legs, I had to put the leggings on um, to stop that because it really pierces your skin. And 
you know, I, I did like cover up, so I had like arm sleeves and I had a neck, like a Sahara hat, and I wore my dazzling white leggings, which of course quite a star. Um, but having the leggings on and, you know, spraying them with water, um, even when they were dry, it was still so much cooler and mm -hmm. using up so much less energy than having the sun directly piercing on your skin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, although I could take some kind of similarities from Spartathlon, um, yeah, they're kind of worlds apart. And Spartathlon, um, they choose like a really... I don't want to say elite field, but you know they'll choose the people who are going to finish it within that really strict deadline. Um, but um, whereas uh, Badwater, so once you get by fifty miles, um, it's quite generous. The cutoffs mm -hmm. are quite generous thereafter. Whereas you're really chasing cutoffs all the time in Spartathlon. You're really aware of times and distance, and um, so yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm really conscious of your time, Debbie, and you as well, James. So I had one bigger question I wanted to touch on, which I think it's quite an important one and maybe a useful one for listeners. And it's around how you really manage to tough out races, right? Um, and for me, I've coached you now for a number of years and stuff. Um, I think there's maybe been a slight change in the last 18 months or so. And it's it's some of the stuff that you do before a race that really sets you up for getting through the toughest events, right? And I'm not just talking about what training sessions you're doing and all the heat stuff and whatever. Um, I think it's a lot to do with setting clear expectations of yourself, maybe. And I'd love to talk a wee bit more about what that really is. So obviously I speak to a lot of athletes before the races. I had a really good example recently. I won't name the individual, but um, to cut a long story short, he was going into a race that they've done before, right? And it was a kind of B race for them. And uh, they had a real focus race, maybe 10, 11 weeks after this race that they were doing this kind of 100 miler. Um, so we had a long open conversation about uh, the first race being one that they were going to be really relaxed about. There's no big expectations. They're going to be super chilled, enjoy the experience. And if there was any kind of niggles or any real problem in the race they would be happy to pull out after 60 miles and stuff like that so we both kind of knew what the plan was we both agreed that we did honest and open conversations about it so turns out the race was a pretty tough one for that individual but he decided not to quit and finish the race and whatever right after a few physical challenges and then we spoke after the race and he was like i just had a terrible race i didn't enjoy it, it wasn't what i thought it was going to be and then he was kind of brave and honest and open enough to say that, yes, we talked about that particular goal about just going out and staying relaxed, but he actually had set himself a goal internally that was to go quicker than he'd done it before, right? And I think we're maybe all a wee bit guilty of doing that sometimes. We'll put, almost put out this public expectation, but deep down we hold something else in, inside and... I, I think that's kind of changed in you a wee bit. It, it seems to me like you've struck the right balance, right? I'm sure you have, like, we we all know how competitive you are, right? You're a competitive athlete and you're probably competitive with lots of things in your life, but it feels like you've got the right kind of balance. And do you do you kind of say that I just want to finish, but deep down there's a, I really need to be on the podium in this race or something? Or how, how have you really managed to get that balance right? Because I think it's actually one of your superpowers, Debbie. And do you think it's like, is it something that you consciously do before the race? Or do you feel 
a greater sense of expectation because you've been so, so successful or do you now think I've got nothing to prove anymore I've already done it before um there's a lot of questions in there Paul I know sorry sorry <laughs> I went just uh, um yeah well first of all I don't race very often as you know because you've coached me for a long time now and um but when I do I'm all in so mm -hmm. I'm not one of these people that do training races so I'm not going to go and do a race yeah. a build up for another race to me training's training racing's racing um and um yeah so i i always throw all my eggs in one basket when i'm doing a race and uh, i really commit and dedicate to that one event that i'm training for um it consumes me sometimes which is not always a good thing but it means mm -hmm. that whenever i go into an event i'm 100 percent prepared i'm so focused i'm so driven and yeah I, I i'm competitive maybe not as competitive with other people as i used to be mm -hmm. um but i'm very competitive with myself yeah. like i do set expectations for myself and it doesn't involve other people so like when i was going in to do the spine race i knew i was going back for a second time and i don't like you know you talked about your athlete it's hard to go into a race um, and not have time expectations because nobody wants to go in and do a race slower than they did at the yeah. last time. Yeah. And nobody goes in with that goal. But when I was going into the spine, it's really even more so. Like ultras, you can't compare year to year because there's so many external factors. You yeah. can't you can't um, prepare for who's going to turn up on the start line. So sometimes if you're going out to podium or compete with other people, it's kind of futile because you don't really know who's going to be there and what kind of shape they're going to be in and what kind of mental state they're going to be in and what issues they're going to have throughout the day. Um, so to go into some of these races like the spine and go back to it, I wasn't really bothered about the time that I ran before because you can't compare one yeah, British yeah, winter yeah, to yeah. the next British winter. You know, they're just, yeah. they're so different. And um, I knew there was going to be like some really strong athletes in that race and the focus was very much on them. I was kind of like on the B list um, and that was fine. I was happy to be that. I wasn't offended by any stretch of the imagination because the people who did have the focus were the people that were going to do well. And this is on the the men's and the women's race. Do you know? I mean, if you looked at that start line, no one would have envisaged that Ian would have won and I would have won because there was people who should have been much faster and much better on the day, but they weren't. And that's fine. Mm. Um, so when I go in, I'm more competitive myself. So I set myself expectations where I want to do the very best that I can in the situation that I find myself in. And that just works out for me because then I don't focus on other people. I don't run other people's racing. I'm not following anyone in a race. I'm not bothered about who's in front of me or who's behind me. I'm just focusing on myself. And when you're doing these big races like Badwater and like Spine, you cannot focus on other people in the race because you'll just do your own head in and you'll start doing things that you shouldn't be doing um so i think for me yeah i i'm not one to quit races like i've been running ultras for about 15 years um and i've got very few dnfs to my name mm -hmm. um one because i prepare properly for them and i don't tend to have a lot of injuries i'm really lucky that in the 20 years i probably had a couple of months out with injuries mm -hmm. I and mean, you'll know paul i yeah, very yeah. rarely take 
And that's because another thing when I'm going into a race, when you just park your ego, when I'm training, I also park my ego because I don't give a flying who follows me on Strava and thinks I'm really slow in my run yeah, runs. Yeah, I just yeah. don't care. Like most of the time when I go out in my training runs, I'll flip my watch onto ascent. You know, that's the only thing I'll have on my watch all the time of yeah. day. Because yeah. when I go out to do my recovery runs or my runs in the morning, I'm not going to say, oh, I run recovery runs at that pace because that's ridiculous because you can't set a pace on a recovery run. It's a feeling. It's not a wa- something that's on your watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just basically I control everything from like my training to my racing um, to stay within myself. Um, so, I mean, that's the reason why I don't get a life. And I am probably quite lucky that I don't get injured very often, but I do a lot of my training miles at, at an easy pace and at an easy pace on what's happening that day. Um, and I guess it's just like parking your ego and just not really caring what other people think. Which is just- I think I just think that's huge, Debbie. And for people listening, if you're going to take something from this podcast, is like and something from what Debbie has achieved, it's like manage those expectations find that right balance and it's a superpower debbie i think it's it's a lesson for all of us and like even when you're talking through your approach to the spine and everything i'm like i wish i was running races like that as well and i should have been for years so um it's a huge credit to you and really amazing advice for people listening i think yeah i think nowadays you know everyone's training is so transparent and everyone's lives or the highlights of their lives are so transparent isn't it Mm -hmm. and do you know what? If you want to follow my training, you know, be prepared to see a lot of really dull, boring runs that start in my house and do like six mile really slow loops. But that's the bread and butter of my training. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. It's kind of that's got me where the places that I've been to is just running really slowly from my door. Um, whereas I think a lot of people feel that they have to race everything and then they just end up fatigued or injured or burst or, and yeah. Just that needs to be the name of your memoirs running really slowly from my door yeah, exactly <laughs> for a long time <laughs> from yeah. a door and around the world yeah I remember I did I did the South Downs way there was a guy that was running next to me like half but like we were about halfway and he says I follow you on Strava you are really slow <laughs> I was like <laughs> yeah so I beat him by three hours um, <laughs> but you know I think it's like you just you just need to run like within yourself and like I don't look at my watch when I'm doing an easy run I do if I'm doing like a speed session because that's important that counts but I I just don't understand why people time or pace like easy runs I I don't get it but then that's fine it's just not for me and that's why I've been in the sport for a long time yeah and I want to be in the sport for a long time so well Paul you've already talked to being a been a bit conscious of time yeah, um, yeah, and King yeah. Debbie. So there's probably a couple of other things we, we want to ask. So, um, w- w- you know, in one sentence, Debbie, aside from Western States, Dream Race or what's next? Um, I'm doing the ARC down in the South Coast Pass in January. I've signed up for that. And um, I might need to find something in between. I don't know why, but I've just got this drive to find something. Don't tell Paul, but I was thinking about signing up for the Glasgow half. That might actually tip him over. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me at all, Debbie, to be honest. No, I don't want to tell Paul. I'm going to go spine, bad water, uh-huh. half marathon. 
Uh-huh. The, the Antonine Trail Race Half Marathon will be on the thirtieth of October, so just give me. Well, that might be good, but I've done that before, and I might use that later. Yeah. Um. Exactly. I, they, so yeah, I've got the arc, and um, I don't actually have a qualifier for Western States next year, so. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's time yet then. Yeah, but no, I'm not. I'm not. I might just if I can take a buy, then I'll do that. So. Cool. Uh, and we'll get to see you at our first Run with Pylon event next yeah, month I'm in super August. About uh, that. You, you and James are going to be leading that event, and I'm excited about it. Um, and I just wondered if are you enjoying passing on some of your ultra experience to your athletes that you're coaching now, and to anyone coming along to the event? Is that something that you? You yeah, I mean, doing, obviously, or? I coach some of the pylon athletes, and uh, I also coach at um, my local running club in Glasgow. So I help coach a, a bunch of teenagers who are like wickedly fast. Um, <laughs> so um, it's really inspiring to see them coming through the ranks as well. I mean, we've got kids that are like sixteen minute five k and stuff. They're insane. Um, and um, yeah, obviously with the pylon athletes and just being part of that and being part of the coaching group and having that support within the coaching group as well. Um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. I love it. I absolutely love it. And James, you're looking forward to the event. You're, do you think there's a benefit of, of doing these things face to face rather than just the coaching, which is mostly online? Uh, first of all, I'm really looking forward to it. I think somebody's super cool been up there with Debbie. Um, Codename Teeth, we're going to call it Debbie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so, um, the two of us up there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but no, looking forward to that because I think it's, um, I mean, I'm looking forward to learning off Debbie as much as anything else. But in terms of the benefits of learning face to face, I mean, look, think, think about learning. You can learn a lot of stuff from a book, you can learn a lot of stuff from watching, and a lot of stuff from listening. Um, but there's nothing like the experiential side of it and it's like the seasoning you know you can it, it's that adds the flavor and deepens the connection and deepens the it just deepens your understanding of a subject so it brings a lot of things home and people will come away from it in my view they'll come away from it with probably two or three aha moments where they'll just go i've just made that connection that you don't make when you're learning in isolation on your own and obviously i've got a you know a a, a professional experience in this but it's that thing when you're learning with others and that diversity of thought and those conversations start to throw up and it might not be me and Debbie they're learning from or you it might be each other because the experience that's in the room or the stories in the room will just make it land so it's I think it's an extremely important experience and I would fully expect some real light bulb moments to land for people Brilliant. I think we've sold our pretty much sold our last ticket today, so um, all good. Oh, wow. We've got a full event, which is no, that, that, was a, that was a waste of a pitch. That was a, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. No, no. I want people to be contacting me to say, "Can I get on a waiting list?" <laughs> <laughs> Never satisfied, James. <laughs> Debbie, thank you so much. I just thank wondered, if, is there anyone you want to thank um, around Badwater or anything you'd like to say to listeners on the back of this podcast at all? Then by all means yeah i mean obviously i want to thank my crew because they were just amazing i I want to thank you paul for just being so supportive and understanding and basically putting up with me since 2015 you probably should be on the queen's list this christmas (laughs) um and uh, obviously 
everyone at the NHS who helped us as a family for the last month or six weeks and he will continue to do so um so yeah that's it and yeah brilliant thank you so much thank you it was great to talk to you both cheers Debbie Well, that was a really great conversation. So much to take in. And like I tried to point out in the chat, part of the reason I think Debbie has been so successful over the years is that she manages expectations and challenges herself rather than thinking too much about other people or times or positions. In the Pylon Athlete email this week, I wrote a short piece about effort being enough. Doing the right thing is enough and results are just a bonus. Don't expect them or wish for them. Chasing goals is always going to be difficult in some way. Running 135 miles is hard. Doing it in 45 degrees adds a whole new dimension. We all have to endure adversity at some point and try to stay on track. Finishing that race, stepping onto a podium, beating the time you set two years previously, those rewards that we expect often don't materialise. We're all faced with this. Will we work hard for something that can be taken away from us? Do we invest time and energy even if an outcome isn't guaranteed? Of course we do. We should proceed regardless of how likely the reward prospects are. What really is the alternative anyway? Doing the wrong thing, not trying, not turning up. I know it's a difficult lesson to learn. I'm still working on it myself. But it's far better when just doing good work is sufficient. In other words, when we are much less attached to outcomes. Pride and self-respect come from fulfilling our own standards. The effort, not the results, good or bad, is enough. And I think that's such a powerful thing to reflect on regularly, especially in busier training and racing periods and just in general life. It's pretty tragic that we can't recognise our efforts are enough when things don't go to plan and the rewards and recognition don't arrive as we expected. So this week, let's be more conscious of what we do and why we do it and don't let externals determine whether something was worth it or not. That is totally up to us to do. Cheers. I'm Paul Giblin. And I'm James Stewart, and you've been listening to... Debbie Kinsani. On the Pylon Ultra Pod. Boom! <laughs> Yay! Brilliant, guys. Thank you so much. You need You're to keep awesome. that in the outtakes. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Debbie, that was brilliant. I really loved it. I loved the conversation. Thank you.